Well, good morning. Today we uh, we finish up the, uh, the the course. We finish up our time together, and we've been looking at C.S. Lewis's um, book, The Four Loves. Uh, C.S. Lewis identifies uh, three natural loves and then one supernatural love. Supernatural love, obviously, being God's God's love. Um, we've talked in terms of it being uh, a couple of um, words, uh, Hebrew word hesed, focusing on loyalty um, in love, um, the, uh, the, the most used word for love in the Old Testament, and then agape, the Greek word, meaning um, servant love, uh, the word that's used most often in the, uh, the New Testament for, for love. Uh, the, he says that the three natural loves, um, affection, um, eros, and, and friendship, uh, need to be chastened, need to be brought under the authority of uh, charity um, in order for them not to themselves uh, take all over and become monsters. And we've talked about ways in which both affection and romantic love um, can become uh, dangerous. Uh, today we're going to talk about sexual love and friendship. The, uh, the scriptures are very graphic and very candid about, uh, about sexual love. Uh, we have stories and pictures uh, in uh, the, the scriptures that uh, portray it as um, being both dangerous and, uh, and wonderful. Uh, the story in 2 Samuel 13 of Amnon and Tamar, Tamar is um, of, the, of the first category. Uh, Amnon was one of David's uh, sons. Um, his, he had a half-sister, uh, Tamar, um, and uh, so she was uh, also David's uh, daughter, and Amnon fell in love with, uh, with Tamar, and uh, he was, uh, we're told, uh, you know, to the point of sickness on account of his love for Tamar. Um, she was a virgin, and it was impossible for him to do anything uh, to her. Um, we're told. Well, he works up this, uh, he, he meets with this friend and he's chatting with his friend and his friend says, uh, you're the king's son, why do you look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? And he says, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Absalom, another one of David's, uh, David's uh, children. Well, Amnon tries to seduce Tamar and she won't, uh, she won't agree. But he, the scripture says, since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And then we have what's, a, what's you know, just a really striking verse. I mean, the verse 14 of 2 Samuel 13, since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And this is after all of his claims of love and sickness uh, that she won't uh, come with him. In verse 15, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. He said, get up and get out. 
and he chased her to his to her her brother's house uh, and she the scripture says was a desolate woman well her brother her full brother Absalom um, over the course of the next couple of years cooked up a scheme then where he was able to murder um, Amnon um, David was um, angry um, at the death of his one son but then after a time he greatly missed his other son and uh, and re-embraced Absalom. But the story of Amnon's um, passion toward uh, Tamar is, uh, is really quite, quite chilling. Um, what, what's the explanation for this, his reaction after having raped her? Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her and then chasing, chasing her out. Any, any explanation for that? Why would, why would he, after having loved her, and I, th and I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, what was the nature of his love for her before, and what was the nature of his hatred for her afterwards, and why did the rape spark his hatred of her. Well, you'd wonder if he, if she's now just a reminder to him of this awful act, and and it's maybe some self-loathing, but focused on her. Good. Good. I think I think that's a that's a great insight. Actually, you know, usually when I ask a question, I I feel like I've got an answer. <laughs> this one I don't. But uh, but yeah, maybe. Maybe the experience reminds him of what he's done, and there's a certain level of self, self-loathing that uh, that goes on with it. I mean, I toyed with the idea, you know, did he not really love her to begin with? Was it just lust and desire, desire for her? But the way that he expresses it and describes it, it seems like more than just a, um, you know, just a, you know, a lust for her. Um, but, uh, you know, it's maybe the odd mix that there is within us, maybe within men, the odd mix of romantic love and sexual desire that sometimes uh, um, is, uh, is present and has very odd, um, you know, yields very odd consequences. Um, but anyway, they're a very ugly picture of, uh, of sexual relations. I mentioned earlier that uh, the Song of Solomon is a, a very dramatic picture of romantic love. It's also a very dramatic picture of, of sexual love. And since it looks like everyone here is over 18, <laughs> I, uh, I think maybe I can read some, somewhat. I think it's one of the blessings of the scripture that Song of Solomon appears in the middle of the Bible so that young people probably never find their way <laughs> all the way there. But just a few, a few excerpts from, uh, from Song of Solomon. Uh, it's, a, it's a passionate book. Uh, from the very beginning, let, me kiss, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. 
pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his, into his chambers. And then, how handsome you are, my lover. Uh, verse 16, how handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. Now, why there's this jump from talking about um, her love for him to commenting on the beams of our house being cedar and our rafters being fir, I'll just leave to your imagination, as he appears to leave to your imagination. Um, few more verses. Um, chapter 4, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Here's the one I like. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. The next line, each has its twin, not one of them is alone. <laughs> So I guess this isn't West Virginia. <laughs> I say that as a Virginian. I hope there are no West Virginians in the audience. Uh, down a little bit, your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. A few lines down. All beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. A few lines down. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any, than any spice? Um, at times in Christian history, this has been portrayed as all analogy, all metaphor, you know, a picture of God's, God's love for us. And it can be a beautiful picture, but the straightforward meaning of it uh, is one of just a celebration of romantic love and sexual love. Well, Lewis says that um, chastity from mere Christianity, actually much of what I'm drawing today is from mere Christianity rather than the four loves. Um, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There's no getting away from it. The old Christian rule, and he would say also the current Christian rule, is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong, one or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it's the instinct which has gone wrong. So we've got that rule, either marriage with complete faithfulness to the partner or else um, total abstinence. Jesus uh, presents, I think, an even more challenging ethic. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Lust there is not just desire for a woman, um, as we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount class, and as Dallas Willard points out, what's envisioned here is looking upon a woman for the purpose 
of lusting. Um, uh, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. Um, so we shouldn't feel guilty about sexual desire. It's the sort of in, in embellishing that, uh, that desire, that fanning the flames that, uh, that Jesus here is talking about. But uh, the act itself is, uh, is not all that's uh, that's prohibited. Now, within the Sermon on the Mount, as we talked about in, uh, in, in that class, uh, this is not so much a command as something pointing out the, you know, the need of our hearts to be uh, transformed and moved in the direction where um, this is not a practice. Um, the teachings of the scripture in these points are um, tough medicine in today's world. Lewis writes, and remember he's writing 50 years ago when I think things were, in England, where things were um, much more modest in the uh, media than they are today. But Lewis says, our warped natures, the devils who tempt us, and all the contemporary propaganda for lust combine to make us feel that the desires we are resisting are so natural, so healthy, and so reasonable that it's almost perverse and abnormal to resist them. Poster after poster, film after film, novel after novel, um, and we might add the internet, <laughs> site after site, associate the idea of sexual indulgence with the ideas of health, normality, youth, frankness, and good humor. There's a, there's a real obvious, very strong tension between what we see in the media and Christian teaching in, uh, in this respect. Well, um, as Lewis says, as a Christian, he thinks it's the instinct that's, uh, that's, that's gone wrong. 1 Corinthians 6, I think, has great um, insight into the na nature of sexual relations. Paul here is talking specifically about relations with a prostitute. Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two shall become one flesh. And there, of course, he's, talk, he's quoting um, from Genesis the description of what marriage is supposed to be, the two becoming one flesh. Um, but he's noting here that when one um, sleeps with a prostitute, one develops a, you know, a spiritual bond with her. It changes um, one um, internally and physically. He says, verse 17, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit, flee from sexual immorality. Um, the, you know, a bond is created when one has sex outside of marriage, um, and one, uh, one either um, has that, uh, that bond that's created or somehow tries to repress it. Um, once that bond is created outside of marriage, it undercuts the bond that can be created within marriage. The alternative is to repress the bond, to dis distance oneself from the tie that sex was meant to, to create. There's not good options when one has sexual relations outside of marriage. 
Well, so is sex bad? Is that the biblical message? This is something to be avoided. All the men in the audience are shaking their head now. <laughs> um, but uh, let's, let's talk about it a, a, a little bit. Given the dangers that Paul describes, you know, have some Christians here, I mean, here's Lewis's statement on it. He says, some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christian, Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves. Is sex a good thing? Thoughts on that? I think it's stressing in the right context, in the wrong context, it's not good. Yeah, in the right context, uh, you know, it's a beautiful thing. Um, Song of Solomon, marital relationship. We've got a whole book that's just full of uh, a, a celebration of it. Um, well, I have a go ahead. friend who said it's like a river. When the river's in its banks, it's great. You know, there's trees alongside. You can go fish. It, it serves a great purpose. But if the river floods and destroys property, ruins land, then it's bad. So when sex is within its proper boundaries, it's great. When it goes beyond the boundaries, it's destructive. Yeah. And you, but um, I mean, many, many of us probably know people that have um, struggled with having a healthy sexual relationship. Um, because of teachings as they were maybe growing up that su suggesting that uh, sexual relationships are, uh, are bad, that the body's to be, uh, be avoided. I mean, we will get into uh, discussions of uh, the meaning of Greek, Greek words, but, uh, but um, some of the, uh, some translations of the scripture that talk about the flesh being evil have led some people to think, well, flesh, that means my body's evil and you know, sexual relationships being, uh, being part of that. Um, and the word that Paul uses uh, in, um, in some of his letters literally does mean flesh, but in context it's quite clear that he's not talking about our bodies being bad, but using that as a as a metaphor for the uh, the the evil desires um, of the, of the body. Paul himself, um, in some scriptures that we'll get to a little bit later on, um, encourages um, you know, couples to have healthy sexual re relationships. Here's the way Lewis. Um, puts it, I mean, he's already called these people muddle-headed Christians. Uh, these muddle-headed Christians were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which means that matter is good, that God gave himself once, took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. You know, so how do we counter what, you know, these negative um, um, views of the body and of, and of sexual relations? Um, there's a Texas minister who about six months ago, I remember seeing, uh, seeing video clips 
um, gave a, gave a sermon, you know, affirming the, uh, the the value of sexuality. He sort of enjoys his props. He preached his sermon from a large um, bed that he had had constructed and placed on the uh, on the uh, stage in his pajamas. <laughs> And then he issued a challenge to his congregation that the married couples within them have sexual relations every night for a week. <laughs> um, he reported the following week, week, probably more than anybody wanted to know, that he and his wife had made it uh, to Wednesday. <laughs> well, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that uh, that we should necessarily go that far. <laughs> um, Maybe he's trying to counter some of the uh, some of these problems that Lewis has uh, has identified. I mean, sexual relations can be one of the most joyful aspects and one of the most challenging aspects of marriage. Um, it can be the source of, in Lewis's words, "quote rollicking good fun," <laughs> um, and it can be the source of great frustrations um, at times in our physical development. The desires of the husband and of the wife seem to go in opposite directions. Um, oftentimes after you know, a honeymoon period of a year or two, um, the stresses of work come along and children come along and there are great demands um, and this can be a source of enormous tension within a, uh, within a marriage relationship. Um, Sexual desire doesn't in itself seem to have the basis for resolving this conflict. Um, it seems to me that must come else from elsewhere. It must come, I think, from agape love, from, from servant love. I mentioned um, earlier that I uh, used to be an attorney and used to handle divorce cases, and I was actually trained under a master who had been doing divorce cases for for years, um, for, for decades, and he, as he was describing to me how to, um, you know, what kinds of questions to ask in the, in the initial interview, said that one of, the, uh, one of the early questions you should ask, I mean, when you're doing divorce work, you jump into quickly, as this will illustrate the most intimate details of uh, people's lives, he said, uh, you know, one of the early questions you ask is when it, when's the last time you had sexual relationship with your, with, you, with your spouse? And he says, sexual relations is not always necessarily a, you know, a cause of the problems within marriage, but it serves as a good gauge. And if it's been a long time since a couple's had sexual relations, um, they, they are having problems, you know, absent some, some special circumstances. I found a, um, um, a, a clip from a letter that Tolkien wrote to his son, which I thought was really quite, quite striking. Um, letter to his son where he's trying to uh, prepare his son for, uh, um, for life in general. And uh, here's what he says. The essence of a fallen world is that the best cannot be attained by free enjoyment or by what is called self-realization, usually a nice name for self-indulgence, wholly inimical to the realization of other selves. But by denial, by suffering, um, 
that is the best um, must be obtained by denial and suffering. Faithfulness in Christian marriage entails that great mortification. For a Christian man, there is no escape. Marriage may help to sanctify and direct to its proper object his sexual desires. Its grace may help him in the struggle, but the struggle remains. Marriage will not satisfy him as hunger may be kept off by regular meals. Marriage will offer as many difficulties to the purity proper to that state as it provides easements. No man, however, truly he loved his betrothed and bride as a young man has lived faithfully to her as a wife in mind and body without deliberate conscious exercise of the will, without self-denial. Too few are told that, even those brought up in the church. Those outside seem seldom to have heard it. It's a rather discouraging picture of marriage. Part of me says he should take this course, <laughs> but part of me tell part of me says um, he's captured um, the real experience that uh, that some people experience in marriage, and um, it may be that you know going back to last week's sessions, sometimes the kind of romantic view that's uh, that's given of marriage needs to be chastened with uh, a recognition of some of the challenges that, uh, that it, it faces, uh, that addresses. Um, well, you know, yeah. but it's always, it's always, it's what's the contrast? What's the other choice? And is it really any better? Yeah. As far as self-realization, contentment, easement, um, it's not. And that's that we, we often try and trade the reality for a fiction which, and don't recognize that it's a fiction and pursue the fiction and find out it's a disaster. No, ab absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I guess you, you've anticipated one of my questions. One of my questions was, you know, so, so how, do we, how do we deal with that? One is to consider, you know, the, the alternatives and you have... Uh, a great many very unhappy folks that have gone, you know, chasing after, you know, all sorts of dreams and fantasies, and then found them found them to be um, unfulfilling, un, unsatisfying. Um, you know, so how does one avoid um, avoid the problems that uh, that Tolkien's talking about? Um, I mean. Jesus has said we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't lust. Um, Job thirty one says uh, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at uh, at, a, at a girl. Um, I think for people who have that as a, that as a challenge have lust as a, a challenge. I think we all do at times that not uh, not feeding it um, is a big is a big part of it. Um, maybe some of us should adopt the practice that uh, that my under I understand Orthodox Jewish men have, and that is that they have their wives go through the newspaper before they read it, and they cut out the underwear ads and other provocative <laughs> pictures that uh, that might might be present. <laughs> For those that are single, I mean, Paul's How do you Paul. Do that on the computer? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. You have to know your computer better than I do, obviously. <laughs> you go to the blank screen that I wasn't able, we weren't able to find earlier today. Um, 
Paul's very, very candid about sexual relations to, uh, to people who are not married. He says, um, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Um, I've always thought that, you know, I mean, you get wedding invitations and they have cute little, you know, squibs from verses often completely taken out of context about the beauties of, uh, of, of love um, on there, you know, I mean, you know, taken from the book of Ruth, uh, you know, having nothing to do with, with romantic love some, sometimes. I've often thought that it would be nice if uh, wedding invitations were a little more candid and across the front of them you had written in beautiful uh, letters, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. <laughs> and, my, and my wife actually saved me one time. We've got these great friends, really close friends. Maybe she saved me and that's why they're still our really close friends. But anyway, he was my roommate. She was a great friend too. And they were going to get married. And so I found out when the date was and I had the money, I was ready, I was gonna, I was gonna have wedding invitations printed up that actually listed the actual date and time and place, and on the front have this printed up and then send it to select friends that I knew would be invited to the, uh, to the wedding. <laughs> Denise convinced me that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> she was wise. That's right, wisdom, one of the real blessings of, uh, of marriage. Paul's also very candid and I think very practical about, um, um, you know, sexual relations within marriage. First uh, Corinthians seven, verse three and following: The husband shall fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The, um, I mean, it's interesting there. there suggest, he suggests that uh, at times fasting from sexual relations is a, a good means of both learning self-control and uh, you know of, of spiritual um, gr growth. Um, very few people fast from food these days. I guess fasting from sexual relations would be a next step down <laughs> down the line. But it it does uh, remind me that I think I think fasting is a discipline that. Uh, enables people to learn to control their their bodies and their desires and if it were a more common practice within uh, Christianity as it has been at times in our um, in our history um, it may be that uh, that sexual relations wouldn't be um, as um, the, um, as big a challenge um, as it is uh, today um, you know in a day when you know, every, everything around you encourages you to uh, try and satisfy all the desires that you feel. Um, you know, what should you um, and your spouse do if you find that you don't have a good sex life? Well, talk about it, explore your frustrations, um, see a counselor, 
Terry Reiser is uh, one that I might suggest, uh, the, the mother of Chad Reiser, who leads, leads our music. That's her area of specialty. She and her husband have taught courses here on the marriage relationship. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a report on a study that had been done at Baylor um, University Hospital um, where they were testing some sort of a drug that's um, a type of Viagra for women. Uh, they were giving it to women with little or no sexual desire. Um, and the interesting thing that they found, they haven't re reported the result on the drug itself, but one thing they found was that 30% of the women who had received the placebo um, reported that they had improved sex lives. And they were speculating on why that would, would be the case. Um, and, um, you know, their thought was that, uh, you know, that they had, they'd all been through counseling, they'd all been at least talked about sexual re relationship, and that had, uh, that had uh, um, maybe been a part of it. They'd also been encouraged to have sexual relations more often. Well, what do you do if you fall into sexual sin? And reminder, lust is included among those by, uh, by, by um, Jesus. Um, here again from Lewis. We may indeed be sure that perfect chastity, like perfect charity, will not be attained by any merely human efforts. You must ask for God's help. Even when you've done so, it may seem for, to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness. Pick yourself up and try again. Very often, what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. For however important chastity or courage or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, this process trains us in habits of the soul that are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us, uh, and teaches us to depend on God. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. Um, we move on to friendship. Any question or comment? Not that I'd be able to answer them. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about uh, friendship, the, uh, the last of the, the loves that uh, we're, we're going to discuss. Um, we may feel like we know about friendship, um, um, but uh, I, I think that uh, insights of particularly the ancient... Uh, uh, the ancients on friendship insights that uh, the Jews, ancient Jews and Christians would have, would have had um, are insights that our age is missing. What is friendship? Lewis says, friends share some insight or interest or even taste which others do not share. Um, it may be something that's just an issue that they find interesting, that they disagree over, but they have the same interest. Lewis says, lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends, friends hardly ever about their friendship, 
Lovers are normally face to face, absorbed in each other, friends side by side, absorbed in some common interest. The focus of the relationship is not on the friend, but the thing that you share in common. I think for uh, strong marriages, um, friendship is something, I mean, it may exist at a deep level at the time of marriage, but I think for strong marriages, friendship is um, something that really grows over time and helps to, uh, helps to strengthen that marriage. Um, the couple sit side by side and they watch their children grow up or they observe their friends. They share in experiences to, together um, and it deepens along with the other types of love the, uh, the relationship. Well, the Bible's, uh, I guess, most striking story of friendship may be that of David and Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan was King Saul's son. David was a young man, just a shepherd, but he had had uh, remarkable exploits on the battlefield, and the people were cheering him rather than cheering King Saul. And uh, so there was, a, there was a movement to make him king, and indeed the prophet had, uh, had anointed him to be, the, to be the future king. Well, Jonathan was the next in line to the throne. How is he to feel about this? Well, they developed a, a strong friendship, and we've already talked about, when we talked about Hesed, that part of their relationship was Hesed. Um, at one point, Jonathan says to David, show me unfailing kindness. Well, the word there is hesed. Show me hesed like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. He anticipates David becoming king. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of your enemies from the face of the earth. Um, they made a covenant with one another saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. So um, Jonathan's agreeing that David's enemies should be called to account. One of them is his own father. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. And then the story goes on. Saul, is, Saul chases David, and David's at great risk of death. Um, but... Um, David and Jonathan work out an arrangement where they are able to meet even though Jonathan's father is trying to kill David and his army is chasing him. They're reunited, verse 41 of 1 Samuel 20. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Um, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we've sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. They have this strong friendship. I mean, some, some have tried to point to and argue that there's you know, a homosexual relationship going, going on here. There's no indication in Scripture of that. Um, kissing was a... Uh, relationship that, uh, you know, is a means of showing affection that men in that culture showed. Um, maybe it's part of our homophobia that we're unable to show affection to one another among men um, um, in, in that way. But, um, 
But anyway, you know, obviously a very close and warm relationship expressed here. Other things that scripture says about friendship. Um, Proverbs 12:26 says, A righteous man is cautious in friendship, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Um, this verse seems to me to point to the fact that there are dangers in friendship. You can become a friend with uh, the wrong person. You can have interests that are wrong. You can be led astray. I think it's interesting that Luke 23:12, in describing Herod and Pilate, says that they had been enemies uh, before Jesus' crucifixion, but when they both faced that same challenge and experience, uh, they became friends. What a basis for a friendship. Well, Jesus' relationships are described as friendships at, uh, at two levels, both with his disciples and with non-believers. Um, when he calls the disciples to be with him, for what purpose does he call them to be with him? The scripture says, just to be with him. Um, we've, uh, we've already looked at ways in which God's relationship with us is described with analogies to other kinds of love, um, affection. God is our father, God is our shepherd. Um, romantic love, the church is described as the bride of Christ. Well, those are all analogies. Um, Jesus speaks in terms of being actual friends with his disciples. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from you. My Father, I've made known to you. And I think our relationship with God needs to be kept in balance. I mean, we worship God, we bow down before God, but here Jesus says that the relationship is to be one of friends. Well, friends are, friend, you know, a relationship of friendship is a relationship between equals. I mean, that's pretty stunning. I guess the striking thing about Jesus' statement is that he's calling his disciples friends. He's calling, he's saying, he's making them his equals. For everything I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. There's no secret agenda here. You know, just like friendship, friends are open with one another, he's open with us. Now, again, I think this has to be taken in balance. Um, you know, Jesus isn't, isn't our, our buddy but he's called us to be part of his project, and um, you know what a high calling that is. The word friends um, is used 37 times in the New Testament of um, you know Christian to Christian relationships. Paul and John, especially in writing to uh, the the churches, they'll say, "My friends," you know, when they want to call them. Uh, to, uh, to, to a challenge. Uh, they also use the term brothers more often, but 37 times is a, uh, you know, a significant uh, number of, of times. Jesus is also identified as being, having friends that were non-Christians. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that was said most often about him was that he was a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
I mean, people observed him enjoying relationships with, you know, the outcasts of, uh, of, of his society. Um, you know, a term that's common now is friendship evangelism. There are too many Christians that don't have any non-Christian friends. Um, many of you, if you think about how you became a Christian, it was, for many of you, I suspect, a Christian friend who you know, developed that relationship and then told you about his or her relationship with, uh, with, with Christ. And Jesus is our model, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Um, let's see. Well, okay. Caleb, you're an accountant. Do you ever have a meal with a tax collector? Because you deal with tax collectors from time um, to time. Let's see. It's been years that we have rules against it. Oh, okay. Well, the government's always stepping yeah. in. Um, the term friend in its traditional meaning uh, really differed from our understanding of, friend, of friendship. Um, Robert Bella, sociologist, um, has, uh, has described this, and I think it's an important understanding for us to have. The traditional idea of friendship had three essential components. Well, I, just, I won't read, read his whole, whole thing, but Aristotle is particularly good, good on this, that friendship involves companionship, which is what we most often think about as being the matter of, uh, of friendship. It also involves being useful to one one another, something we generally don't associate with uh, with with friendship. I mean, what Aristotle Aristotle described both of these relationships—that is, companionship and then sort of business re relationships—as less than true friendships. Um, but he noted that these relationships often develop into into friendships. The essence of a true friendship for Aristotle, and I, and I think this is true from, for the Christian perspective as well, as I mentioned, this is the ancient notion of friendship, is that friends share a common commitment to the good. Um, shared commitment to the good, it seems quite extraneous to us to the idea of friendship, but for Aristotle and his successors, it was precisely the moral component of, of friendship that made it the indispensable basis for a good society. For it's one of the main duties of friends to help one another to be a better person. One must hold up a standard for one's friends and be able to count on a true friend to do likewise. This is something that's really been neglected in modern ethical theory. How might friends make us better people? In what ways might friends help us to be better people? How might I help each of you to be better people, <laughs> and you, me? Well, your earlier story where, um, what was it, Armand's best friend encouraged him to have a relationship with Tamar. <laughs> that wasn't only helping him be a better person. That's right. It, it, the one who encouraged your friend to do something that is not for the common good. Yeah, that's a good. It's a good counterexample. You're anticipating the rest of the uh, our class. Friendship can be a dangerous yeah. thing. 
friends can friends can lead us astray, uh, and we we have that in the story of Am, Amnon and his friends and the, and the, the rape that uh, that followed. But in what ways can friends be help us to be better people? Well, a friend could have come beside Amnon after that, and and walk with him if you know walk with him through that if there was you know repentance and and you know a heart that wanted wanted to make things right okay good good when we when we've strayed um, we you know we need we need friends we need people to encourage us to um, go in the right direction I mean when when people when people have done wrong, uh, they're often uh, often isolated. Mm-hmm. I've got a, a real good friend. He's a lawyer in Tennessee, and he's got an incredible ministry of writing letters to uh, to people that he's never met who've been convicted in, in very high level, you know, scandals. You know, he he uh, you know politicians and other people who you know, are found to be guilty of bribery or charged with bribery or whatever. He'll he'll write them a very thoughtful letter and of course they're getting nothing like that from uh mm-hmm. from, from any anyone um trying to be a, a friend to them. Um you know other ways in by which example, friend, friendship by might example, Okay, by example. Someone that's uh, you admire, you know, that's a friend of yours and you admire the way they handle their life and their relations. Okay, good. Good, yeah. Examples. I mean, a person that we're close to who is is doing good is likely to have a strong influence on us. Uh, many many of you may be able to point to friends that have um, been a, a good role model to you. Okay, other, other ways in which friendship might uh, might help us to be a better person well friends could join together to take on some enterprise or some goal or some project that's good and and work together and both become better through the striving and the effort and working together okay good yeah a joint effort I mean some of the greatest movements in history also some of the worst movements in history, but some of the greatest ones have been, you know, a little band of people who had a common vision and then encouraging one another to work together. Um, I think the most striking example, the most striking example I know about is the Clapham sect in England, um, who under the leadership of William Wilberforce, but, but maybe too much attention is paid to him, but there were uh, a number of equally um, talented people, hardworking, who led England to uh, to reject the slave trade, and um, the you know, and then inspired uh, America. Probably were, um, were were among those that spurred America to uh, to do away with slavery. Um, but it's wonderful to read. I've read a couple of books about uh, the, the Clapham sect, you know, the encouragement they give to one, one another. Um, the stories told in 
movie that was out a few years ago. It's available on video called Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce. Um, good. Well, you know, there are, num there are a number of ways that a friend can um, help us in, you know, the, in, in, in moral development and to stand for our principles. Um, in a friendship relationship, we learn to care for the friend. As we learn to care for the friend, those skills become skills that we can use with, uh, with other people. As we'll see in a moment, the dangers of friendship, one of the dangers is we become, become so focused on the friend that we leave others aside. But the good part is that we can develop skills that then are skills for caring for others. Second, and this is part of what, uh, what's already been said, um, a friend provides truthfulness that enables one to, uh, to know what's going on and, uh, and how to act. Here's, uh, this is from Aristotle. We are not able to see what we are from ourselves. That we cannot do so is plain from the way in which we blame others without being aware that we do the same things ourselves. As then when we wish to see our own face, we do so by looking into the mirror. In the same way, when we wish to know ourselves, we can obtain that knowledge by looking at our friend. The self-sufficing man will require friendship in order to know himself. Um, third, um, friends can help us to be better, better people by helping us to determine the right thing to do in a particular situation. And when we go to a friend and, uh, and ask for advice and counsel when we float to them what our plans are in a, in a particular situation. Um, a friend is someone who can provide two things which in combination make them wise counselors. First, a friend is commi committed to my good. A friend is someone that I know, you know cares for me and my good. But secondly, a friend is someone who's detached, and it's so those it's the it's that combination of gifts that a friend a friend has commitment to my good and yet detachment from from me that uh, enables the friend to think through my plans and give me some an independent judgment as to whether I'm assessing things uh, properly and making wise decisions. If any of you had friendships that you might uh, share with us, you know, just a short description of a, of a friend that um, had an impact on you of the sort that we've been describing. As you're thinking, I'll just comment that Again, the sort of rugged American individualism, the, the John Wayne mentality is, you know, I stand on my own. I don't need other people. Um, one of the beauties, I think, of all of the types of love that we've, uh, that we've seen is a realization that, uh, yeah, there's value to in independence. I don't mean to undercut that, but um, we really aren't all that we should be without other people to um, guide and direct and encourage us.
couple years ago, I sought out a man who I was friendly with, but we hadn't had a deep friendship, but I felt like he would be the one that could um, help me with some struggles at work, some issues that I wanted counsel on. And so we meet for lunch a couple of times a month for a couple of years, and it's been, yeah, it's, it's become this kind of friendship. Okay, good. I think here we're talking, the friendship I think we're talking about is man to man and woman to woman. I don't think it works if you have a deep friendship with the opposite sex. Especially, you know, if you're married and have a relationship. Yeah, Lewis, Lewis talked about that. Um, you know, there are dangers in man to woman fr right. friendships. Um, in particularly with some sorts of issues that aren't <laughs> that are, are difficult to uh, to deal with um, man man to woman, um, and there are dangers and risks that uh, that that accompany it. I wouldn't I wouldn't draw that though as a as a you know an an, an absolute line. I think it depends on you know the the context, but. Um, but there is a, a danger that friendship can drift over into uh, into romantic love and then and then beyond. I mean, I think that's a wise that's a wise caution to uh, to, to present. Hey, uh, I have uh, a group of a group of men that uh, we've been meeting together probably for ten years. You know, try to be we try to do it every Wednesday morning um, for coffee. But it has become, you know, I mean, obviously we've, we've become very close and there really isn't anything there that we don't talk about or support each other with. Uh, and they're, uh, they're, they're Christian men and we all come from different, different backgrounds. But one of the things that, I, that hit me um, is that our wives are also good friends, mm. which um, I find very, uh, I, I shouldn't say rare, but... Well, actually, maybe it is rare <laughs> after all these years, and I, I found that it, that has really strengthened our friendship. Mm -hmm. Is that our wives are friends as well? Uh huh. Okay, good. But there, another example: men, men friendships, and women, uh -huh. women friendships. Um, you know, I can think of relations I've got with. You know, I think of particularly of another woman who's a um, who's a law professor, a Christian. I mean, I think one of the beauties of our both being Christians is that there's no thought of, you know, yeah. the the option of a relationship beyond it. I mean, I, I, I think one of the, you know, if we if we weren't Christians, you know, maybe there would there would be that thought. But the the structure of the Christian life, the limitations, we might say that uh, we talked about about earlier what might be perceived as limitations on um, sexual relationships um, is in some ways freeing because um, since you know uh, sexual relations is not on the table as, a, as an option I think in that context friend, friendship has been able to, to develop and um, and you know that for me, that's been a been a valuable thing to have uh, this particular friend. Well, that um, 
as, as we get here to the, to the end of the course, I've listed all the different types of love that, uh, that we've talked about. I mean, one thing that you can think about in your, in your own time is really the relationship between C.S. Lewis's four loves and Gary Chapman's five love languages. The thing that strikes me is that the love languages are ways of expressing love they're ways of expressing, I mean, some of them may fit more easily with the types of love that, uh, that Lewis describes, but, um, you know, several of them may be means of expressing love. I mean, for example, I think in, uh, in all of these types of, of love, for example, physical touch, you know, a hug um, is a means in different relationships of expressing them. Some some don't fit the sexual relationship, obviously, uh, being uh, being one that fits within the uh, you know that um, that fits with eros and within the marriage uh, re relationship. But as you look at all the different types of relationships you have, um, you know, consider expressing them in the form of various love languages. I want to conclude the course with what I think is maybe the most important verse and what I think is an extremely important concept for, for marriage but for other types of relationships as well, and that is 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers over a multitude of sins. We often tend to think in terms of justice, you know, what's my rights um, within a relationship that's broken down? Who, who was wrong? Let's figure out who was wrong. Then that person can apologize, and then we'll have a clean slate, and we can move ahead. You know, if that's your agenda in trying to maybe renew your relationship with your spouse after you've had problems, Maybe it'll work after a couple years of counseling. <laughs> or, you know, maybe you'll be able to figure out who was wrong, and that person acknowledge that they were wrong, kiss and kiss and make up. But the beauty of this verse is that love covers over a multitude of sins. Love is a, as charity is a wonderful breakthrough uh, that can. Um, overcome what, what often I think are perceived as insurmountable um, barriers. You don't have to figure out who was wrong. You know, you can leave it uh, behind. Um, you, can, you can say, I love you, meaning that you want the best for the, the other person. Um, you know, if a, uh, if a couple has fallen apart and want to get back together, you know, their feelings are numb. Uh, do they say, I love you, in a warm, romantic tone? Well, that would maybe be dishonest or seem dishonest and be, uh, be a, uh, you know, a false way of trying to get back to uh, um, relationship. Do they fall into bed and, um, you know, pretend to uh, d desire a strong, you know, sexual relationship? I mean, that might be dishonest as well and might feel like prostitution. But I think agape is the answer. You can say, I love you as an act of the will, as a desire to serve the other person. Um, you can have sexual relations in an attempt to meet the needs of the other person as a means of agape love. Uh, 
you can try to identify the spouse's love languages and love them in that way um, and thereby express your love. Thanks for being a great class. It's been the kind of class I like, the kind that Will is in right now in school, a class where I feel like I learn more than the students. It's been fun. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe we could close in prayer. Caleb, would you say a prayer for us? Dear Heavenly Father, um, we are so grateful for the example of love that Jesus Christ showed and the many examples in the Bible of love and friendship so that we have models, but we know that even with those models, we need the infilling of the Holy Spirit in order to live that out. And we pray that you'll fill us so that we can be good friends and love others the way we want to, we should be loving them. We, that we will love our spouse sacrificially and we will love others because you've loved them and made them in your image. So send us out to be lovers and friends. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.